Chapter 24, Part 3 of The Deline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter 24 The Retreat and Death of Julian, Part 3. The fields of Assyria were devoted by Julian to the calamities of war, and the philosopher retaliated on a guiltless people the acts of rapine and cruelty which had been committed by their haughty master in the Roman provinces. The trembling Assyrians summoned the rivers to their assistance, and completed, with their own hands, the ruin of their country. The roads were rendered impracticable, a flood of waters was poured into the camp, and, during several days, the troops of Julian were obliged to contend with the most discouraging hardships. But every obstacle was surmounted by the perseverance of the legionaries, who were inured to toil as well as to danger, and who felt themselves animated by the spirit of their leader. The damage was gradually repaired, the waters were restored to their proper channels, whole groves of palm trees were cut down and placed along the broken parts of the road, and the army passed over the broad and deeper canals on bridges of floating rafts, which were supported by the help of bladders. Two cities of Assyria presumed to resist the arms of Roman Empire, and they both paid the severe penalty of their rashness. At the distance of fifty miles from the royal residence of Tesiphon, Perisabor, or Anbar, held the second rank in the province, a city, large, populous, and well-fortified, surrounded with a double wall, almost encompassed by a branch of the Euphrates, and defended by the valour of a numerous garrison. The exhortations of Hormistas were repulsed with contempt, and the ears of the Persian prince were wounded by a just reproach, that, unmindful of his royal birth, he conducted an army of strangers against his king and country. The Assyrians maintained their loyalty by a skilful as well as vigorous defence, till the lucky stroke of a battering ram, having opened a large breach by shattering one of the angles of the wall, they hastily retired into the fortifications of the interior citadel. The soldiers of Julian rushed impetuously into the town, and after the full gratification of every military appetite, Perisabor was reduced to ashes, and the engines which assaulted the citadel were planted in the ruins of the smoking houses. The contest was continued by an incessant and mutual discharge of missile weapons, and the superiority which the Romans might derive from the mechanical powers of the balliste and catapulte was counterbalanced by the advantage of the ground on the side of the besieged. But as soon as an heliopolis had been constructed, which could engage on equal terms with the loftiest ramparts, the tremendous aspect of a moving turret that would leave no hope of resistance or mercy terrified the defenders of the citadel into a humble submission, and the place was surrendered only two days after Julian first appeared under the walls of Perisabor. Two thousand five hundred persons of both sexes, the feeble remnant of a flourishing people, were permitted to retire. The plentiful magazines of corn, of arms, and of splendid furniture were partly distributed among the troops, and partly reserved for the public service. The useless stores were destroyed by fire, or thrown into the stream of the Euphrates, and the fate of Amida was revenged by the total ruin of Perisabor. The city, or rather fortress, of Maugamalcha, which was defended by sixteen large towers, a deep ditch, and two strong and solid walls of brick and bitumen, appears to have been constructed at the distance of eleven miles, 
as the safeguard of the capital of Persia. The emperor, apprehensive of leaving such an important fortress in his rear, immediately formed the siege of Maugamalcha, and the Roman army was distributed for that purpose into three divisions. Victor, at the head of the cavalry, and a detachment of heavy armed foot, was ordered to clear the country as far as the banks of the Tigris and the suburbs of Ctesiphon. The conduct of the attack was assumed by Julian himself, who seemed to place his whole dependence in the military engines which he erected against the walls, while he secretly contrived a more efficacious method of introducing his troops into the heart of the city. Under the direction of Nevita and Dagalaipus, the trenches were opened at a considerable distance and gradually prolonged as far as the edge of the ditch. The ditch was speedily filled with earth, and by the incessant labor of the troops, a mine was carried under the foundations of the walls, and sustained at sufficient intervals by props of timber. Three chosen cohorts, advancing in single file, silently explored the dark and dangerous passage, till their intrepid leader whispered back the intelligence that he was ready to issue from his confinement into the streets of the hostile city. Julian checked their ardor, that he might ensure their success, and immediately diverted the attention of the garrison by the tumult and clamor of a general assault. The Persians, who from their walls, contemptuously beheld the progress of an impotent attack, celebrated with songs of triumph the glory of Sapor, and ventured to assure the emperor that he might ascend the starry mansion of Ormuzd before he could hope to take the impregnable city of Maugamalcha. The city was already taken. History has recorded the name of a private soldier, the first who ascended from the mine into a deserted tower. The passage was widened by his companions, who pressed forward with impatient valor. Fifteen hundred enemies were already in the midst of the city. The astonished garrison abandoned the walls, and their only hope of safety. The gates were instantly burst open, and the revenge of the soldier, unless it were suspended by lust or avarice, was satiated by an undistinguishing massacre. The governor, who had yielded on a premise of mercy, was burnt alive a few days afterwards, on a charge of having uttered some disrespectful words against the honor of Prince Hormistas. The fortifications were razed to the ground, and not a vestige was left that the city of Maugamalcha had ever existed. The neighborhood of the capital of Persia was adorned with three stately palaces, laboriously enriched with every production that could gratify the luxury and pride of an eastern monarch. The pleasant situation of the gardens along the banks of the Tigris was improved, according to the Persian taste, by the symmetry of flowers, fountains, and shady walks, and spacious parks were enclosed for the reception of the bears, lions, and wild boars, which were maintained at a considerable expense for the pleasure of the royal chase. The park walls were broken down, the savage game was abandoned to the darts of the soldiers, and the palaces of Sapor were reduced to ashes by the command of the Roman emperor. Julian, on this occasion, showed himself ignorant or careless of the laws of civility, which the prudence and refinement of polished ages have established between hostile princes. Yet these wanton ravages need not excite in our breasts any vehement emotions of pity or resentment. A simple naked statue, finished by the hand of a Grecian artist, is of more genuine value than all these rude and costly monuments of barbaric labor. And, if we are more deeply affected by the ruin of a palace than by the conflagration of a cottage, our humanity must have formed a very erroneous estimate of the miseries of human life. 
Julian was an object of hatred and terror to the Persian, and the painters of that nation represented the invader of their country under the emblem of a furious lion who vomited from his mouth a consuming fire. To his friends and soldiers the philosophic hero appeared in a more amiable light, and his virtues were never more conspicuously displayed than in the last and most active period of his life. He practised, without effort, and almost without merit, the habitual qualities of temperance and sobriety, according to the dictates of that artificial wisdom which assumes an absolute dominion of the mind and body, he sternly refused himself the indulgence of the most natural appetites. In the warm climate of Assyria, which solicited a luxurious people to the gratification of every sensual desire, a youthful conqueror preserved his chastity pure and inviolate. Nor was Julian ever tempted, even by a motive of curiosity, to visit his female captives of exquisite beauty, who, instead of resisting his power, would have disputed with each other the honour of his embraces. With the same firmness that he resisted the allurements of love, he sustained the hardships of war. When the Romans marched through the flat and flooded country, their sovereign on foot, at the head of his legions, shared their fatigues and animated their diligence. In every useful labour, the hand of Julian was prompt and stenuous, and the imperial purple was wet and dirty as the coarse garment of the meanest soldier. The two sieges allowed him some remarkable opportunities of signalizing his personal valor, which, in the improved state of the military art, can seldom be exerted by a prudent general. The emperor stood before the citadel of Perisabor, insensible of his extreme danger, and encouraged his troops to burst open the gates of iron, till he was almost overwhelmed under the cloud of missile weapons and huge stones that were directed against his person. As he examined the exterior fortifications of Mao Gamalcha, two persons, devoting themselves for their country, suddenly rushed upon him with drawn scimitars. The emperor dexterously received their blows on his uplifted shield, and, with a steady and well-aimed thrust, led one of his adversaries dead at his feet. The esteem of a prince who possesses the virtues which he approves is the noblest recompense of a deserving subject, and the authority which Julian derived from his personal merit enabled him to revive and enforce the rigor of ancient discipline. He punished with death or ignominy the misbehavior of three troops of horse, who, in a skirmish with the Surenas, had lost their honor and one of their standards, and he distinguished with obsidional crowns the valor of the foremost soldiers had ascended into the city of Mao Gamalcha. After the siege of Perisabur, the firmness of the emperor was exercised by the insolent avarice of the army, who loudly complained that their services were rewarded by a trifling donative of one hundred pieces of silver. His just indignation was expressed in the grave and manly language of a Roman. Riches are the objects of your desires. Those riches are in the hands of the Persians, and the spoils of this fruitful country are proposed as the price of your valour and discipline. Believe me, added Julian, the Roman Republic, which formerly possessed such immense treasures, is now reduced to want and wretchedness once our princes have been persuaded by weak and interested ministers to purchase with gold the tranquillity of the barbarians. The revenue is exhausted, the cities are ruined, the provinces are dispeopled. For myself, the only inheritance that I have received from my royal ancestors is a soul incapable of fear, and as long as I am convinced that every real advantage is seated in the mind, I shall not blush to acknowledge an honourable poverty 
which in the days of ancient virtue was considered as the glory of Fabricius. That glory and that virtue may be your own, if you will listen to the voice of heaven and your leader. But if you will rashly persist, if you are determined to renew the shameful and mischievous examples of old seditions, proceed. As it becomes an emperor who has filled the first rank among men, I am prepared to die standing, and to despise a precarious life, which every hour may depend on an accidental fever. If I have been found unworthy of the command, there are now among you, I speak it with pride and pleasure, there are many chiefs whose merit and experience are equal to the conduct of the most important war. Such has been the temper of my reign, that I can retire without regret and without apprehension to the obscurity of a private station. The modest resolution of Julian was answered by the unanimous applause and cheerful obedience of the Romans, who declared their confidence of victory, while they fought under the banners of their heroic prince. Their courage was kindled by his frequent and familiar recitations, for such wishes were the oaths of Julian. So may I reduce the Persians under the yoke. Thus may I restore the strength and splendor of the Republic. The love of fame was the ardent passion of his soul but it was not before he trampled on the ruins of Maugamalcha that he allowed himself to say, We have now provided some materials for the sophist of Antioch. The successful valor of Julian had triumphed over all the obstacles that opposed his march to the gates of Ctesiphon, but the reduction, or even the siege, of the capital of Persia was still at a distance, nor can the military conduct of the emperor be clearly apprehended without the knowledge of the country, which was the theatre of his bold and skilful operations. Twenty miles to the south of Baghdad, and on the eastern banks of the Tigris, the curiosity of travellers has observed some ruins of the palaces of Ctesiphon, which in the time of Julian was a great and populous city. The name and glory of the adjacent Seleucia were forever extinguished, and the only remaining quarter of that Greek colony had resumed, with the Assyrian language and manners, the primitive appellation of Okoche. Koche was situated on the western side of the Tigris, but it was naturally considered as a suburb of Ctesiphon, with which we may suppose it to have been connected by a permanent bridge of boats. The united parts contribute to form the common epithet of Almodain, the cities, which the Orientals have bestowed on the winter residence of the Sassanids, and the whole circumference of the Persian capital was strongly fortified by the waters of the river, by lofty walls, and by impracticable morasses. Near the ruins of Seleucia, the camp of Julian was fixed, and secured by a ditch and rampart, against the sallies of the numerous and enterprising garrison of Coche. In this fruitful and pleasant country, the Romans were plentifully supplied with water and forage, and several forts, which might have embarrassed the motions of the army, submitted, after some resistance, to the efforts of their valour. The fleet passed from the Euphrates into an artificial derivation of that river, which pours a copious and navigable stream into the Tigris, the small distance below the great city. If they had followed this royal canal, which bore the name of Nahar Malcha, the intermediate situation of Koche would have separated the fleet and army of Julian, and the rash attempt of steering against the current of the Tigris, and forcing their way through the midst of a hostile capital, must have been attended with the total destruction of the Roman navy. The prudence of the emperor foresaw the danger, and provided the remedy. As he had minutely studied the operations of Trajan in the same country, he soon recollected that his warlike predecessor had dug a new and navigable canal, 
which, leaving Kocha on the right hand, conveyed the waters of the Naharmalcha into the river Tigris, at some distance above the cities. From the information of the peasants, Julian ascertained the vestiges of this ancient work, which were almost obliterated by design or accident. By the indefatigable labor of the soldiers, a broad and deep channel was speedily prepared for the reception of the Euphrates. A strong dike was constructed to interrupt the ordinary current of the Naharmalcha. A flood of waters rushed impetuously into the new bed, and the Roman fleet, steering their triumphant course into the Tigris, derided the vain and ineffectual barriers which the persons of Ctesiphon had erected to oppose the passage. As it became necessary to transport the Roman army over the Tigris, another labor presented itself, of less toil, but of more danger than the preceding expedition. The stream was broad and rapid, the ascent steep and difficult, and the entrenchments which had been formed on the ridge of the opposite bank were lined with a numerous army of heavy cuirassiers, dexterous archers, and huge elephants, who, according to the extravagant hyperbole of Libanius, could trample with the same ease a field of corn or a legion of Romans. In the presence of such an army, the construction of a bridge was impracticable, and the intrepid prince, who instantly seized the only possible expedient, concealed his design, till the moment of execution, from the knowledge of the barbarians, of his own troops, and even of his generals themselves. Under the specious pretense of examining the state of the magazines, fourscore vessels were gradually unladen, and a select detachment, apparently destined for some secret expedition, was ordered to stand to their arms on the first signal. Julian disguised the silent anxiety of his own mind with smiles of confidence and joy, and amused the hostile nations with the spectacle of military games, which he insultingly celebrated under the walls of Coche. The day was consecrated to pleasure, but, as soon as the hour of supper was passed, the emperor summoned the generals to his tent, and acquainted them that he had fixed the night for the passage of the Tigris. They stood in silent and respectful astonishment, but when the venerable Sallust assumed the privilege of his age and experience, the rest of the chiefs supported with freedom the weight of his prudent remonstrances. Julian contented himself with observing that conquest and safety depended on the attempt that instead of diminishing the number of their enemies would be increased by successive reinforcements, and that a longer delay would neither contract the breadth of the stream nor level the heights of the bank. The signal was instantly given and obeyed. The most impatient of the legionaries leaped into five vessels that lay nearest to the bank, and as they plied their oars with intrepid diligence, they were lost after a few moments in the darkness of the night. A flame arose on the opposite side, and Julian, who too clearly understood that his foremost vessels in attempting to land had been fired by the enemy, dexterously converted their extreme danger into a presage of victory. "'Our fellow soldiers!' he eagerly exclaimed. "'Are already masters of the bank. See, they make the appointed signal. Let us hasten to emulate and assist their courage.' The united and rapid motion of a great fleet broke the violence of the current, and they reached the eastern shore of the Tigris with sufficient speed to extinguish the flames and rescue their adventurous companions. The difficulties of a steep and lofty ascent were increased by the weight of armor, and the darkness of the night. A shower of stones, darts, and fire was incessantly discharged on the heads of the assailants, who, after an arduous struggle, climbed the bank and stood victorious upon the rampart. As soon as they possessed a more equal field, Julian, who with his light infantry had led the attack, 
darted through the ranks a skilful and experienced eye. His bravest soldiers, according to the precepts of Homer, were distributed in the front and rear, and all the trumpets of the imperial army sounded to battle. The Romans, after sending up a military shout, advanced in measured steps to the animating notes of martial music, launched their formidable javelins, and rushed forwards with drawn swords to deprive the barbarians, by a closer onset, of the advantage of their missile weapons. The whole engagement lasted above twelve hours, till the gradual retreat of the Persians was changed into a disorderly flight, of which the shameful example was given by the principal leader, and the Surinas himself. They were pursued to the gates of Ctesiphon, and the conquerors might have entered the dismayed city if their general Victor, who was dangerously wounded with an arrow, had not conjured them to desist from a rash attempt, which must be fatal if it were not successful. On their side, the Romans acknowledged the loss of only seventy-five men, while they affirmed that the barbarians had left on the field of battle two thousand five hundred or even six thousand of their bravest soldiers. The spoil was such as might be expected from the riches and luxury of an oriental camp. Large qualities of silver and gold, splendid arms and trappings, and beds and tables of massy silver. The victorious emperor distributed, as the rewards of valor, some honorable gifts, civic and mural, and naval crowns, which he, and perhaps he alone, esteemed more precious than the wealth of Asia. A solemn sacrifice was offered to the god of war, but the appearances of the victims threatened the most inauspicious events, and Julian soon discovered, by less ambiguous signs, that he had now reached the term of his prosperity. On the second day after the battle, the domestic guards, the Jovans and Herculeans, and the remaining troops, which composed near two-thirds of the whole army, were securely wafted over the Tigris, while the Persians beheld from the walls of Ctesiphon the desolation of the adjacent country, Julian cast many an anxious look towards the north, in full expectation that as he himself had victoriously penetrated to the capital of Sapur, the march and junction of his lieutenants, Sebastian and Procopius, would be executed with the same courage and diligence. His expectations were disappointed by the treachery of the Armenian king, who permitted, and most probably directed, the desertion of his auxiliary troops from the camp of the Romans, and by the dissensions of the two generals, who were incapable of forming or executing any plan for the public service. When the emperor had relinquished the hope of this important reinforcement, he condescended to hold a council of war, and approved, after a full debate, the sentiments of those generals who dissuaded the siege of Ctesiphon as a fruitless and pernicious undertaking. It is not easy for us to conceive by what arts of fortification a city thrice besieged and taken by the predecessors of Julian, could be rendered impregnable against an army of sixty thousand Romans, commanded by a brave and experienced general, and abundantly supplied with ships, provisions, battering engines, and military stores. But we may rest assured that the love of glory and contempt of danger, which formed the character of Julian, that he was not discouraged by any trivial or imaginary obstacles, at the very time when he declined the siege of Ctesiphon, he rejected with obstinacy and disdain the most flattering offers of a negotiation of peace. Sapor, who had been so long accustomed to the tardy ostentations of Constantius, was surprised by the intrepid diligence of his successor. As far as the confines of India and Scythia, the satraps of the distant provinces were ordered to assemble their troops, and to march without delay to the assistance of their monarch. 
but their preparations were dilatory, their motions slow, and before Sapor could lead an army into the field, he received the melancholy intelligence of the devastation of Assyria, the ruin of his palaces, and the slaughter of his bravest troops, who defended the passage of the Tigris. The pride of royalty was humbled in the dust. He took his repast on the ground, and the disorder of his hair expressed the grief and anxiety of his mind. Perhaps he would not have refused to purchase, with one half of his kingdom, the safety of the remainder, and he would have gladly subscribed himself, in a treaty of peace, the faithful and dependent ally of the Roman conqueror. Under the pretense of private business, a minister of rank and confidence was secretly dispatched to embrace the niece of Horemisdas, and to request, in the language of a suppliant, that he might be introduced into the presence of the emperor. The Sassanian prince, whether he listened to the voice of pride or humanity, whether he consulted the sentiments of his birth or the duties of his situation, was equally inclined to promote a salutary measure, which would terminate the calamities of Persia and secure the triumph of Rome. He was astonished by the inflexible firmness of a hero, who remembered, most unfortunately for himself and for his country, that Alexander had uniformly rejected the propositions of Darius. But as Julian was sensible, that the hope of a safe and honorable peace might cool the ardor of his troops, he earnestly requested that Hormisdas would privately dismiss the meeting of Sapor, and conceal this dangerous temptation from the knowledge of the camp. End of chapter 24, part 3 Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland